I remember after the very first day, this like eight to five with like, oh, what's the code for? I need to grab a glass of water. What's the code for? I need to use the restroom. It felt like one of the longest days of my life. And I remember going home and being like, you got to be kidding me. I've still got four days left in the week. Welcome to The Change. Thanks again for tuning into our pilot episode, Wading Into Discomfort, where we discuss emotional courage and mindfulness. This is part two of this episode. Again, thank you for listening. Here to tell us more about the power of emotional courage is Kristen Taylor. Kristen is a business and mindfulness coach and works with executives and individuals, helping them look within using techniques to truly connect with one's higher self. Kristen, welcome to The Change. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course. We've been talking about emotional courage today and the journey of finding oneself in purpose. You earned an MA in counseling psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies and started your career in counseling. After struggling financially to establish your career, you pivoted from being a therapist and started working in corporate America in the insurance industry and worked as a corporate trainer. You've described for me that the pay was better, but it was soul crushing. <laughs> Can you tell us more about this time in your life and what you learned going through this experience? Yeah, yeah, it was soul crushing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was not where I imagined myself, but the financial constraints had gotten such that I was like, I need to find a job that pays me enough. And so looking at what I'd earned in terms of my degree, what my skill sets were and what was available. I found work, like you said, in an insurance company and it was soul crushing in the sense of I worked for um, what's called employee assistance programs. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of triage work, Okay, but you were always being timed. Like I even had to put in a code if I had to go to the bathroom versus if I had to get a snack versus whether I was at lunch um, we had our little cubicles and, you know, there were a lot of jokes about, you know, just our little cubicle worlds and, um, <laughs> just trying to find the humanity in it. But there was also a ton of pressure to fit in and to follow scripts and to follow protocol. And, um, it was the antithesis of creative and authentic authentic, even though, you know, getting into conversations and doing crisis management and assessments with people over the phone, you, you could connect with people. But I remember after graduate school, um, I got this job and I was trying to get my clinical hours and I was like, okay, let me see if I can do both. Let me see if I can work towards licensure while also getting paid to work for this insurance company. And I needed to. And I remember after the very first day, this like eight to five with like, oh, what's the code for? I need to grab a glass of water. Or what's the code for? I need to use the restroom. It felt like one of the longest days of my life. And I remember going home and being like, you got to be kidding me. I've still got four days left in the week. And this is what it's going to be like over and over and over again. And this is like, I say this from such a place of privilege. This is what the workday is like, but it was just an adjustment. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
So then you went to work as a student coach for a company that partnered with universities across the U.S. And what was it about coaching? What was it about coaching that resonated with you? Yeah, so that's a major fast forward. So um, working for insurance companies, being a crisis counselor, getting into corporate sales and then corporate training. Um, I found this company called Inside Track, and it was totally liberating. It was liberating because the culture was amazing. There's these like brilliant and um, deep thinking, compassionate people. And when I was going through the training, everything just clicked. It was like it connected with all of my clinical training. We were being taught like, okay, so you're working with someone and they don't know how to resolve a problem. You're working with a student. How do you help them resolve this problem? And so many people were all about giving advice. And I knew having been trained as a therapist, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to tell them how to do something. If, if, you know, if their hair is on fire, I'm going to throw a bucket of water on them if they need it. But the most important thing is to help them figure out their own capacity to solve a problem. So I already had been trained how to be a coach in that I'd been trained to be a therapist to say like, okay, let's take a look at where you are now. Let's take a look at where you want to be. All right. Between there, here and there, what steps might you think to resolve it? Because I wanted to empower people. And I remember the trainer being like, yes, that is right. That takes a long time to train people to know how to do that. And that's just something that was part of what I had learned to do and part of who I was. So it felt really liberating and I didn't have to put in a code when I had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like a much different experience than that, you know, having to have your whole day organized or, you know, entering codes to use the restroom and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So today you're a business coach working with business leaders and CEOs and your focus Mm -hmm. is on mindfulness emotional mm-hmm. resilience, and you've described yourself to me as an empath. So mm-hmm. what is an empath and where do you think this originated within you? Yeah. So that's a really big question because um, there are two parts of it. So what is an empath is the easier part. Um, an empath is someone who feels very deeply and can feel the feelings of other people very easily. So there's a high level of emotional intelligence. So I'm continually, as are empaths, picking up signals, often body language, energy, emotion, reading a room, reading a person, and tuning in where things are more subtle and aren't always as obvious to other people. And that's just how I gather information. That's how I connect with people. That's how I learn. That's sort of like my field of perception is the language of emotion. So that's a bit about what an empath is. They connect with and feel with people and situations. Yeah. Where did that come from? I feel like I was born this way. And I feel like with the particular environment I was raised in, and this is where I'll just open up and be real, um, it was not great. My family upbringing, not so great. There was domestic violence. There was a lack of safety. And it required of this quiet empath a lot of vigilance, a lot of reading cues, a lot of trying to understand people, a lot of trying to look for safety, which is not easy, but it only dialed up 
that sort of spidey sense of who's thinking what, who's feeling what, what's about to happen so that as a child, I could be safe. So that's where it came from. Yeah. And for better or for worse, and both are true, um, I needed to hone it. And that's what I did. I'm really interested in this idea of these sorts of feelings of empathy and intuition and emotional connectedness that comes out of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you, what's your perspective on that connection? Like out of trauma comes this deep ability to heal. Well, I don't know if I would say it exactly like that. I think you were on to something. What I would say is as an empath, there is a special sensitivity I had and that all empaths have and a deep responsibility to care for that heart centeredness, to care for that intuition. And what trauma does is that, um, for me, I will speak to this. I, it impacted my ability to emotionally regulate. So what we all need, particularly as children, is the ability to have safety with those that we care for, to have the experience. This is just a human experience of needing co-regulation. So a baby cries and the caregiver picks them up. The caregiver is safe, calm, soothing. And I did get that. My mother absolutely provided that. But as children, we need that co-regulation desperately. And when we don't get it, we become dysregulated in our nervous systems. And so we can go, like our happy place is that, this is what um, a psychiatrist by the name of Stephen Porges, he has, um, he's the founder, the originator of a theory called polyvagal theory. And when we're at our happiest, where we're present, where we have access to joy, to connection, when we're deeply connected to who we are as an empath, we are in social engagement. Our nervous system is at its home base. But if we have parents that are not able to emotionally regulate and provide that safe co-regulation and that safe mirroring and that safe nervous system, calm, happy place consistently, it's very easy as an empath or as anybody, to be dysregulated. So I was often, and even as an adult, really have to be so focused on my own emotional regulation as an empath. Because I, I can easily go into dysregulation, which means I can either go into fight or flight, panic, nervousness, anxiety, or I can go into shutdown. It all just becomes terribly overwhelming. Like, for example, I remember um, my mother was my primary parent, but for whatever reason, she wasn't there, and my father hadn't learned to emotionally regulate. And so I, we were leaving and in a hurry, and I couldn't find something, and I was starting to get frantic. And with my mother, she could help me downregulate. It's okay, honey. We're going to find it. Don't worry about it. Take a deep breath. Where did you last see it? I remember with my father, this is an example of a parent not knowing how to help a child regulate. I started to get frantic and he got angry. And so what I did, seeing in the face of my fear of my anxiety, him getting angry, I then parented him. It's okay. I got it. Dad, don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. I got it. I got it. 
so that I could feel emotionally safe. Mm -hmm. And so it's no accident that, you know, as an empath and having these experiences and wanting to foster my own healing, I chose to be trained as a therapist and that I am now working with executives who are struggling to emotionally regulate, who are dealing with anxiety and imposter syndrome and um, high levels of stress because so much of my own healing is what I bring to other people so that I can co-regulate with them. Like I remember working with you, it's okay, I share this, you you said, um, you said, you know, you just created such a safe container. That is another way of saying is I co-regulated with you. I tuned into you and provided safety so mm-hmm. that people can explore their thoughts and their feelings and practice vulnerability in a safe setting. You know, you, you said something that I think is curious to me, um, which is how your father, you know, he, he kind of, you had to emotionally regulate him um, in mm-hmm. some regard. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we don't learn that as children, we're obviously not able to model that for our own children. Right. Now there's some people that, you know, they just never, they just don't ever improve or I don't know if that's the right word. They, they just aren't able to make the connection and, and see what's happening within them and how they're modeling their behavior. And there's others like, it sounds like you, you know, as, as you matured and, and became an adult, you know, you you figured it out and and have spent time working within yourself to make the changes necessary so that you could be the right the parent that you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I'm just very curious how, you know, why do you think it is that some people just they kind of like halt emotionally, whereas mm-hmm. others are constantly challenging themselves and constantly exploring. Hmm. Well, I think I don't know the the big answers. I don't know, but here are my guesses. So starting with the fact that you called me an empath, I didn't have a choice because I'm so connected to emotion and because I am a highly sensitive person and my nervous system can so easily become dysregulated. I started to have panic. It started to create dysfunction. I started to have autoimmune issues. So it was like the issue just, it's like, okay, you ignore me now. I'm going to get louder. Ignore me again. I'm going to get louder. It just mm-hmm. got louder and louder. People who are less sensitive and have different life paths, they c- can become very functional and adaptive. Um, they might live in a world where um, being non-emotional or having um, uh, and this is going to sound judgmental, but because it is judgmental in a way, but having toxic masculinity where outward expressions of anger, control, mastery, a certain type of leadership is encouraged, then that kind of behavior is reinforced. Um, And they can gain success and accolades and influence. Or they, they live in a world where it's just not an emotional domain. Maybe they're focused on numbers or accounting or, you know, um, so and everyone's need for 
upregulating and upregulating means I need more energy, like I need a little bit more of that arousal state versus someone who perhaps like me or people who are empaths and a lot of the people that I'm working with who are just incredibly stressed out. So much of the work is around downregulating. It's around how do you use the breath to engage your sympathetic, excuse me, your parasympathetic nervous system to engage the relaxation response. How do we create peace and calm? And again, that's through the breath, it's through mindfulness. So some people, their life just doesn't require it and they're not as sensitive. So they're not, they're not encountering all of the consequences. In fact, it might be working for them in many ways that the world encourages, so to speak. Does that make sense? What I just said? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, you know, so in regards to your development, you know, as an empath and your career and, you know, the, you described how you had that job where, you know, you had to enter a code to go to the bathroom, <laughs> um, you, you know, you had, and this is, you know, true for a lot of people and people have their own different journeys, but in your journey, it wasn't until you were around midlife that, mm-hmm. you know, you finally came into your own. You told me that you truly came to learn that you were not doing anyone any favors by playing it small. Right. So do you want to go back a little bit and describe this time in your life? And I mean, specifically around when you had, you know, quote unquote, a revelation that you, where you realized you were playing it small and, you know, now was the time to stop and, and, and really become what you were meant to be. Right. Right. So there was not one incident but it was a series of occurrences where um, when it was, because I am a highly sensitive person, when I was in small groups or one-on-one, I was so connected and at ease. And I was working as a manager. I was directing groups of coaches to, to really allow them to flourish in their roles. And that's where I was shining. Like people were like, I want to be on Kristen Taylor's team. And and it just felt right. And then I would get into a larger company meeting and suddenly the anxiety for me would go through the roof. And people had heard the reputation, like all the coaches are saying they want to work with you and we hear so many great things about you. And then you get in this meeting and you're so quiet. And I had another director who was very outspoken after a meeting. She said, Kristen, come on take the lampshade off. What are you doing? People need to hear your voice. We need to learn from your wisdom. And so logically, I understood that. I knew what I was doing, both where I shined with the one-on-ones and with my smaller team. And I knew what I was doing in those larger meetings. And what was happening in the larger meetings is that my anxiety was going through the roof. So I was in my amygdala. I was in that lizard part of my brain, the limbic system, where I was in fight or flight. I was in fear and I was dysregulated. And it was hard for me to access my wisdom. But I knew she was right and I knew I had to do something to to manage this, this anxiety because I wasn't put on this planet to play small or to allow fear to be in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. And truly, Adam, it wasn't until I was laid off twice in about a year and a half that it was like, I need to roll up my sleeves and do this work. And it wasn't that I hadn't been to therapy for years, and it wasn't that I wasn't acutely aware of my own anxiety, but I just started to, without restraint, 
pour myself into a journey of learning and healing and connecting to the wisdom that I was learning in a courageous way and stop playing small. I love that metaphor that that you referenced, taking the proverbial lampshade off and letting the light of your gifts shine. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just so powerful. You know, tell me more about what that meant to you and what that journey was like to actually take the lampshade off because yeah. I can't imagine that is at all easy. No, it's not. It's not. It is it is the the path of courage which means it requires so much vulnerability. But it was so interesting. So what is I can't remember what that saying is that the energy it takes to remain small actually becomes more painful than the energy and I'm totally butchering this beautiful saying of actually becoming larger, um, of taking risks. When this woman said that to me, I knew deep in the core of who I was, she was absolutely right. And yet, my nervousness in moments of public exposure just could feel so overwhelming that I was like, I see the gap. I see the gap between how I'm living versus who I am. And what I mean by that is my nervous system, my fear is not who I am, but it is, I'm experiencing myself in the smallness that my fear requires and dictates. So the journey was, how do I learn to manage my fear? And I do this every single day. I feel like I really am in many ways encountering fear, I think, as we all are every single day. But how do I learn to live side by side with it versus having it be the dictator of my choices and whether I speak up and how loudly and to whom? And so, so much of what I learned was, yes, about the nervous system. Yes, was about mindfulness. Yes, was about meditation. Yes, was about breathing. Yes, was about remembering my own intuitive gifts and the gifts of being an empath, but really the biggest teacher was learning self-compassion. Because what I would do in the face of my fear is I would be so critical of like, what the F is wrong with me? Why am I doing this again? And it would catapult me into a narrative of my brokenness. And it would actually amplify the fear response in my body and more deeply ingrain the belief that I was this fearful person living with a lampshade on and not allowing my light to shine and then beating myself up and that whole cycle. And so self-compassion really was the route to recognizing those moments of even when my voice was shaking that I would speak up and then honoring the shaking voice, honoring the pounding heart with, sweetheart, you're a good heart. You are allowed to thud loudly. You are invited. And just speak to myself with kindness. It's almost that like spiritual reparenting. It was what my mother did when she was a great mother, when she would co-regulate and provide safety for me. It was really practicing compassion that was the breakthrough, self-compassion. Yeah, I just, it, it's, it's odd that, you know, as people, we just focus on the negative and we spend so much of our mental energy around that, but we 
you know, we spend so little time nurturing ourselves. And I want to read a statement that you shared with me. Um, and, and when I read these words, I mean, they completely moved me. I found myself com- contemplating in my own life how I had come to a similar perspective. So you wrote these words. What I've come to learn and appreciate is that vulnerability and courage are not just about doing the thing that is scary, which is where most people focus, but in being there for ourselves after we do the scary thing. It's when we read the negative feedback, when we don't get the job, or when we mess up or do not live up to the performance side of vulnerability. The practice of courage in those moments is dependent on the cultivation of self-compassion. Do we have our own backs in those moments when painful emotions like fear and shame surface and when they shape our thoughts, our beliefs, and our concepts of self? My greatest growth has come in those dark places when I do not abandon myself, but instead practice nurturing myself. So how did you come to the self-discovery about nurturing and not abandoning yourself Mm. in tough tough times? I, I think it's, like I said before, it's, it just seems so easy to just, you know, focus on and on, on the negativity and and circle back into the negative self talk. So, you know, right. for for you, you know, can you describe a little bit about where you started to recognize this nurturing aspect, and, mm-hmm. and that's where really the magic of the healing is. Yeah. So when I um, thank you for reading back those words, and what you're really referring to is what I think of as Act Two of courage and compassion. Um, Act one is doing the scary thing in front of other people. It's more relational. And act two is when you're on your own and how you reflect and how you, as an organizing principle of your self-concept, how you um, behold yourself, how you nurture yourself. And truly in this, like immersing myself in this growth over the past, especially four years, it's through um, Tara Brock. So Tara Brock teaches um, meditation, Buddhist meditation and mindfulness, and what she taught in terms of self-compassion, as well as Kristen Neff, was so restorative and illuminating. Let me repeat those differently. Illuminating and restorative. That's the right order for me. Mm -hmm. And I just listened every single day. And I'd never, in all my years of being trained to be a therapist and working with people and doing my own therapy, maybe I had heard it, but I wasn't ready. And so what I also want to loop back to is when you say, God, it's, it's amazing that we can be, and I'll say your words, I'll paraphrase them, but we can be so mean to ourselves that we don't practice self-compassion. Mm-hmm. But when I think about, and I'll just use myself as an example, but I think other people can relate to this. When we're children, when we're young adults, it's about survival. So as a child, when you're seeing adults and people around you acting in ways that you simply can't control and you have no agency over, one reliable thread that we do have agency over is our own ability to self-manage. And if we can find the culprit and if we can feel responsible, then we feel at least a modicum of control. So that's the shame. It's my fault. I should have been a better little girl. I should have not gotten dirty or uh, made them upset. It's a way of feeling a sense of control in a world where we don't have control. It's like when children blame themselves for their parents' divorce. 
It is not adaptive, but when you feel terribly out of control, it's reliable. And then we foster it over and over and over again. And our world certainly does reinforce it in many ways. We're continually being measured. And so in many, in ways that are not, again, adaptive, it worked until it didn't, until it became corrosive and harmful. And yeah, Tara Brock changed my life. So in regards to mindfulness, I mean, how did you discover it? Um, how does it relate to emotional courage? You know, tell us mm. a little bit about your own journey to mindfulness and how you practice it. Yeah. So what was also a huge revelation was recognizing that my anxiety was often as it, at its worst when I would time travel, when I would project into the future or when I would revisit the past. But if I truly anchored myself in the moment, in my body, that was where I could find peace. It was in being in the present moment. And for me, as well as so many people, the thought of meditation in the beginning was so daunting. Like My mind is just so damn noisy that mindfulness felt like the gateway drug to meditation. <laughs> if I could just become aware of, and this is one of my favorite questions, of like, what is my mind full of? Mm. And it's that metacognition, it's the observing part of me that could notice the habits of thought, the habits of emotion, the habits of how I'm holding my body, and just through a neutral curiosity, and acceptance, bear witness to what I was thinking, feeling, and believing, those were moments of an invitation to practice self-compassion, an invitation to notice differently, an invitation to move from the roller coaster of my thoughts and emotions into the grounding principle of feeling my feet on the ground, um, feeling the wind on my face and through my hair. It would break the spell or the illusion of fear and get me into the moment and out of this sort of trance of, and this is what Tara Brock talks about, the trance of unworthiness. And replace that word unworthiness with whatever it is, trance of jealousy, trance of anger, trance of whatever it is that we find ourselves repeatedly believing, thinking, imagining, and really using the present moment to break the spell and be with what is. Yeah. So, you know, for somebody that, you know, wants to explore mindfulness or begin implementing implementing it in their own lives how how does somebody start to understand mm -hmm. and explore and practice mindfulness mm -hmm. well first comes the desire there's so many resources out there i mean all you need to do is look up mindfulness you can try tara brock i mean there are a million different practitioners but to me it's the recognition much like i'm talking about with my story to say what i'm doing isn't working as well as i would like I am not sleeping well. I am stressed out. I'm feeling tension in my body. My blood pressure is high. My relationships are suffering. There's so many ways in which 
when we are not in the present moment, when we are not mindful, when we are not practicing self-compassion, the consequences begin to build and you say, I want to do something differently. That is the first thing is to notice this isn't working or it isn't working as well as I want. I'm not experiencing enough access to joy, to peace, to connection. And then you make a decision to say, I want to try something different. Because mindfulness is actually quite simple, not easy, but simple. But it's the desire to not suffer. I really feel like Adam, the reason I do the work that I do, and the reason I was born an empath is I want to help people alleviate their their emotional suffering. Mindfulness is a beautiful route and invitation to do so. So it's the desire to end or be in relationship differently to our emotions and minimize our suffering. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, you know, at least for myself, that I, I had gotten to that place where I felt there was nothing left to do than, you know, stop being my own barrier. I, I had all these patterns developed that I thought were my ways of emotionally self-regulating. And it was, you know, when I kind of looked within and I, I let my higher self, I let that voice reach my heart mm. where, you know, I, that's when the connection was made for, for me yes. at least. I love that. I love that. It's the awareness that when you are, this is how I interpret what you were just saying. When we are connected to ego, we are connected to fear. And when the coping mechanisms and patterns no longer work and serve our own desire to evolve and to suffer less, then it's like the spell is broken and you're like, let me, let me try something different. There's got to be a better way. Your higher self is showing up. Yeah. I love that. Can you speak about the neuroscience and, and the fear response and how we need to care for ourselves when getting back to that, taking off the lampshade? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being in that vulnerable place. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I know as a client of mine, you've heard me say this and any client who's worked with me has heard me say this. It's the amygdala hijack. And I, and I reference that it's part of the limbic system. It's the most primitive part of our brain. It's the fight or flight. It keeps us safe and thank God it's there, but it can be overly activated. And when we are in our amygdala and when we are in fear, we are not accessing other parts of our body. So our nervous system and our amygdalas are just highly activated and it's hard to, like I said, be present. It's hard to be in our prefrontal cortex. It's hard to exercise executive functioning and abstract thinking and connection to ourselves and others. And so what I teach people is number one, the awareness to recognize when it's happening, which it's pretty damn loud. So it's easy to see. But it's also teaching them breath work because that really is the most powerful way to interrupt patterns in the mind and in the nervous system to engage, like I said before, the relaxation response. So that is one of our most powerful resources to start rewiring how we think and how our body responds to stressors in our life. Yeah, you mentioned breathing. I know there's some techniques that you know we've worked on um, straw breathing and uh, you know th- different different exercises like the basic exercise, really to just mm-hmm. kind of reset and put yourself 
in that place of calm and quietness and and really focusing on within. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about how those simple actions you know, can really just bring that level of calm within yourself. Um, so what's happening is that when we are in an amygdala hijack and our heart is pounding and our blood pressure is elevated and we're in that fight flight, blood is going to all the extremities so that, you know, our ancient wisdom of our nervous system is, you know, being attacked by a tiger on the Serengeti. I got to run the hell out of here. But our life isn't in peril. Our body's just reacting as if it is. And so one of the most effective things to do is to understand that when we are inhaling, we are activating the sympathetic branch of our nervous system. That is the arousal state. And when we are exhaling, we are engaging the parasympathetic branch, and that induces the relaxation response. So what you're referring to with straw breathing is a very deliberate way to interrupt an amygdala hijack or this activated nervous system by inhaling for a shorter period of time through our nose and exhaling through a longer period of time through our mouth. And what you'll find after even like three to four breath cycles, it's also called ratio breathing, shorter inhale, longer outhale through the mouth, you just start to calm down. It just Mm -hmm. feels so much better. And I also work with people, especially when there's trauma, and all of us have been traumatized, with grounding exercises, right? There's so many different ways to ground. I I had a client said that, you know, for her, she will just interrupt and say, do I have feet right now? Do I have feet? And she will connect with the sensation of her feet on the floor when there's such activation internally with our brains and our nervous systems. But that's a way of bringing us back to that home base, that place of connection. It's called ventral vagal social engagement. That is where we want to live more so that we can live side by side with our fear rather than the fear being in the driver's seat. Yeah, I think that's powerful. Just the recognizing living side by side with it. I think we spend so much time fighting against it and really not allowing it in. Okay. So I have one last question for you and then, and then we'll let you go. Okay. Do you ever think about where you might be today if you hadn't found this emotional courage (laughs) within yourself? Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. I was just talking with someone and and she also has some of the same sensitivities that I do. And both she and I were saying our bodies are so loud. Um, I would be so sick physically and emotionally. I would be so sick. I worry I would have a heart attack. Um, I worry I would have cancer. My body was screaming, care for me, love me, tune in. And all of these signs and symptoms were showing up. And so the gift of being an empath is that there's a deep awareness and ability to connect and to be a part of a healing journey for others and yourself. But it doesn't mean it feels good. There's so much self-care that is required to finally tune this this gift. And I was ignoring it because I had learned to ignore it. If I did not do this, I would be miserable and potentially very, very sick. Well, thank you for joining today. It's been 
you know, really interesting to hear about your journey and what you've been doing to help others, um, you know, people in business, individuals, you know, to help, you know, the work that you do to help them in their own journeys. So thank you, Kristen. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Kristen Taylor lives in Olympia, Washington with her husband and son. You can find out more about her as well as her coaching and mindfulness practice on her website, KristenTaylorConsulting.com. You've been listening to stories of emotional courage as told by our guests, Cassandra Robinson and Kristen Taylor. I want to thank them for demonstrating emotional courage by being our inaugural guests here today on our pilot episode of The Change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufriti. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufriti.com. These links and more about our guests can be found on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. 